Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the party of Donald Trump, driven by lies and sedition, displaying its nihilism on the House floor to the extent that even Trump himself is urging his most ardent followers to stop the obstruction and vote for Kevin McCarthy. Joining us is Jacob Halbrun, who is a senior editor at the National Interest and a columnist for The Spectator. He's the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and we will discuss his article at the London Spectator, Kevin McCarthy is a Dead Man Walking. Then we'll get a long perspective on how the House of Representatives used to work and get things done as we watch the train wreck of a twice in 100 years failure to elect a speaker, which back in 1923 took nine rounds of ballots, while today McCarthy has failed to get the job he so desperately wants after six ballots. Joining us is Paul Light, who is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, President's Congress and the Search for Answers, 1945-2012, to and his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. Then finally, we'll look into the scandalous effort by Southwest Airlines executives to blame 5,000 flight cancellations over the holiday week on the weather after the airline's top executives took billions of taxpayer money from the payroll protection plan meant to keep their workers on the job and instead spent it on salary raises for themselves and stock buybacks. Joining us is William McGee, a senior fellow for aviation and travel at the American Economic Liberties Project, who spent 22 years at Consumer Reports, first as the editor of Consumer Reports' travel letter and since 2009 as the aviation advisor for advocacy, testifying before Congress numerous times on airline mergers, competition, safety and passenger rights, as well as serving as the lone consumer advocate on Transportation Secretary Raymond LaHood's Future of Aviation Advisory Committee. An FAA licensed aircraft dispatcher who spent seven years in airline flight operations management and was a flight release officer in the United States Air Force Auxiliary. He's the author of two books, The Airline Industry Expose, Attention All Passengers, and Half the Child. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jacob Halbrun, who's a senior editor at the National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and he has an article at the London Spectator, Kevin McCarthy is a Dead Man Walking. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Harbron. Thank Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jacob. And we've had a sixth round of voting for McCarthy as uh, House Speaker. He's He's been rejected six times, largely by the Freedom Caucus, which comprises of election deniers and insurrectionists. He, he sucked up to them shamelessly for months and months and yet the 10% is denying the 90%, and that's the House rules. So he, they've taken a, a recess. They're supposed to come back at 8 p.m. Eastern, which is when we go to air. But to me, uh, Jacob, this feels a little bit like Einstein's definition of insanity, which is trying to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. Exactly. I suspected from the beginning that the Republican hardcore would never back McCarthy. 
precisely because they saw him for who he was, an unprincipled opportunist, an empty suit who truckled to Trump almost immediately after January 6th, even though he knew better. They want the real hard proof House uh, Speaker, though in some ways there may be nothing that can satisfy these fanatics. It's not an accident that some Republicans are calling them the Taliban 20 in reference to their to the 20 members that keep opposing McCarthy's nomination. Well, it reminds me of what uh, Boehner, the former speaker who was driven out by these same, they were, they were the Tea Party back then, or the Freedom Caucus now, he described them as legislative terrorists. They are, and... In essence, I think they're nihilists. This is a continuation, in a sense, of January 6th. Many of these members were themselves conspirators in the January 6th plot to deny Joseph Biden the presidency. Now they're back at it again, except they've, they've swiveled their firepower towards their own party leadership. And they have managed to stop government from functioning. There is no functioning House of Representatives. No committees are being are being established. They have brought everything to a standstill. And this is a precursor of what they would like to do in the coming two years, which is don't pass government funding. Don't raise the debt ceiling, hurl the United States into a Great Depression and watch it all happen. They are utter fanatics. So as you point out in your article, Jacob, there's no House of Representatives, there's no House Speaker, there's no committees being formed, and on top of that, of course, there are no new Congress people being sworn in, and that includes, <laughs> I'm afraid I have to laugh, but it is really sick, this George Santos story, and I'm trying to figure out what where he got the $700,000 from. Apparently he made a lot of trips to Moscow, and he's been getting money from Vexelberg, one of Putin's oligarchs. So there's a whole story there. But still, uh, I guess there's only one person more of a skunk at the picnic than McCarthy, right? And that's uh, George Sanders. So maybe McCarthy's enjoying that a little. Well, Santos is emblematic of the Republican Party. He is the, the talented Mr. Santos, who stands for nothing but himself, a grifter, very much in the mold of of Trump, who obviously lied and uh, invented much of his background as well, portraying himself as a successful businessman, which is exactly what Santos did. In both cases, it's a, it's a hoax. Well, you quote Winston Churchill in your article apropos what McCarthy is doing and the fate that he's enduring, and, and that is Churchill's remark was, quote, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. So do you think that Steve Scalise, who sent out a Dear Colleagues letter a while back saying how all the wonderful things that he stands for, which the far right have a litmus test on, you know, like abortion, etc., that was clearly uh, angling without being too obvious uh, that I'm the alternative. So do you think in this recess that they're now taking before they come back at 8 p.m., do you think this possible that McCarthy will finally realize that this is not going to happen? He's not going to get the votes, and therefore he has to turn it over to somebody, and that person, I imagine, would be Steve Scalise. What do you think? I agree. I think Scalise has been gunning for the position. It won't be Jim Jordan. But whether McCarthy throws in the towel tonight, I wonder. I think he's still addicted to California dreaming. And he has, he, this isn't his first rodeo. He tried in 2015 to become House Speaker and was denied. Now this is his last shot. He may be prepared to uh, keep pursuing this in a Sisyphean effort to become House Speaker. For some reason, he has no, he appears to have no discernible shred of dignity or self-respect. He has prostrated himself before the far right, and apparently cannot acknowledge to himself that for all his truckling, 
he has failed. He will never be Speaker of the House. He will never replace Nancy Pelosi. Well, he's already made extraordinary concessions to the bomb throwers, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, where he's offered her a coveted spot on the oversight committee. He's also brought back the so-called Holman Rule, which is a way that they can defund the FBI, which is one of their paranoid delusions. And the most amazing thing of all is that they brazenly (laughs) agreed, or McCarthy brazenly agreed, to get rid of the Ethics Committee. So in other words, if they're hanging up a shingle saying, we're in favor of corruption, (laughs) what do you make of these people? I mean, and by the way, Scalise will go along with this, won't he? Most likely. I mean, they want to eviscerate any oversight. Again, it's very Trumpian, the idea that if they're in power, they can do as they like. Uh, They don't believe in we the people. They believe in they the people. Right, but do they believe in getting shot? I mean, they've taken away the metal detectors. Those metal detectors were, were aimed at preventing House members from bringing guns to the floor. Now, who do you think in the Congress is going to bring guns? They know that it's not the Democrats. Well, it's already been Bobbitt, right? She's been pulled over a couple of times, Lauren Bobbitt, the very person who today put forth Byron Daniels, right? As, as a, remember, well, remember what Trump said at, at the January 6th rally. He told the Secret Service to, to take down the magnetometers. He said, those are my people. They're not here to hurt me. Well, he, knew, he knew what they were about. They were there to storm Congress. The Republican Party, or a significant element of it, wants to employ these people as shock troops to scare and intimidate the rest of us. So who's getting benefit from this? Is this yet another gift for the plutocrats behind the scenes that you just have a dysfunctional government, therefore there's no oversight, and that they can pollute and have their taxes cut and all of the stuff that, which seems to be the top priorities? Is, is this just a, an even more cynical version of the kind of shadow government of plutocracy that we have here in the United States? No, I think it's a lovely post-Christmas gift to the Democrats who are watching this and chortling. If the Republicans can't govern themselves, how are they going to govern the country? They've set, they've begun in a disastrous fashion. They've shown that they're unable to wield their majority in any sensible or prudent fashion. And they've also put Biden and the Democrats further on notice that when it comes to the debt ceiling, the, this faction will not budge. We are looking at potential chaos. Biden is going to have, and Mitch McConnell are going to have to figure out some way to address government funding and the debt ceiling. Otherwise, we are headed for a Great Depression. And these people will welcome it as a way to destroy a functioning government. They are not interested in legislating or trying to improve the lives of daily Americans. They are engaged in a performance, which is to try and sabotage the government any way they can. So it's hardly a coincidence that today President Biden is with Mitch McConnell in Kentucky with a big infrastructure project, a bridge between uh, Kentucky and Ohio, which came in uh, as a result of the bipartisan bill. So those two are probably talking about what you're exactly saying, right? Yes. I mean, it was serendipitous that this, that this trip occurred right after the Republicans hit the self-destruct button. Very few people thought that it would take this many well, they haven't even accomplished that, that, it, that the Republicans would stymie themselves to this extent. Um, by the way, they're also losing time in setting up committees to investigate the Biden administration. I mean, to get back to your earlier point, they really have shot themselves in the foot here. For, for Biden, this is manna from heaven. He gets to look like the wise, prudent steward of and showing that he's willing to deal with the opposition by appearing with McConnell. McConnell, by who is being vilified today by Donald Trump, 
you saw the tweet that he sent where he claimed that Trump, that, that McConnell is the victim of a domineering wife who he called Coco Chow. Wow. Yeah, he's been pulled over for that before, but you can't keep the, <laughs> the racist, uh, you can't keep racism out of the racist, I get. What do you think is going to happen on Friday then if this catastrophe still continues in the House when Biden is making his address about January the 6th? Well, it, it really does set up his address beautifully. Um, and if they are still unable to elect a speaker by, by Friday when Biden makes his address, he can directly link the two and say that whenever you have Republicans on the Hill that, and that they are creating chaos and that the chaos that occurred on January 6th may have been more violent, but this is another attempt to sap and destroy a functioning American democracy. Well, again, they are motivated by the big lie, which is what Trump has hoisted, and uh, the insurrection. Many of, many of them took part in it. Many of them may have enabled it. And one of the things on their agenda, by the way, is not just to investigate the FBI and cut funds, but they also want to exonerate all these insurrectionists who've been tried and convicted. Absolutely. Those are their people. And the Republicans, or the, this, these 20, I don't even know if you can call them conservatives, I, they're more like fanatics or nihilists, are hell-bent on defending these people as great American patriots. Something is deeply awry in the Republican Party. That is the message that I think any rational American watching this clown show can only conclude. And the Republicans are demonstrating that they are inept and unable to govern. You know you're in serious trouble when Marjorie Taylor Greene is the voice of sanity in the Republican Party telling her fellow malcontents that they need to take a win and elect McCarthy. She's, she's more sane, or at least more Machiavellian than they are. Right. Right, but this, Jacob, this is Donald Trump's uh, Republican Party. And all of the things you're saying about this clown show, we've had the most outrageous clown show in, for now for four years in this country. The most incompetent, dangerous, mentally ill president in the history of the United States. I mean, some of the transcripts that came out on Sunday from the January 6th committee verify what Woodward had in his recent book about how Nancy Pelosi was worried that Trump was going to use the nuclear button as a way to stay in power or threaten something crazy. She calls up the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, and says, you've got to call Vice President Pence and start invoking the 25th Amendment and she, sa she says to Millie, you know, Trump, he's crazy. And Millie agreed. And then he went on to say that he felt that the nuclear codes were in safe hands. So there's nothing more serious than that, Jacob, the possibility that you have a president who's so crazy that he could end the world. And one of the most cynical things that I've learned recently about him putting a target on Mike Pence's back during the insurrection where he tweeted out to his people that Mike Trent was essentially a traitor, and then they put up gallows to hang him and were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Well, had they hung Mike Pence, Trump would have been perfectly happy with that because he could have put his flunky in there as vice president and stopped the count for Biden. How low can this country sink? I don't want to distract from... As bad as what's happening in the House now, I'm just trying to remind our audience who has been president of the United States and who's still out there running for president. And I, for the life of me, do not understand why the American people, most of them, don't understand how dangerous Trump is. And this fiasco on the House floor is just a reflection of his politics. Well, there's no question that uh, Trump would have been delighted if the crowd had hanged Mike Pence. Uh, he would have seen that as divine retribution for defying him. He was relying on Pence to tilt the election for him. But we are now witnessing, I think, 
the logical culmination of the Trumpification of the Republican Party. And the chickens are coming home to roost. Even Trump can't control these fanatics. He's telling them to vote for Kevin McCarthy, and they refuse. So the, the insurrection is now taking place inside the Republican Party. We are witnessing the meltdown of the Republican Party. And we can only hope that it does melt down and that something semi-rational emerges from this mess. But right now, the party is staring into the abyss. Well, Jacob Halbrun, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Halbrun, who's a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic, and he has an article at the London Spectator, Kevin McCarthy is a Dead Man Walking. We're going to take a brief station break and we'll back with a long perspective on how the House of Representatives used to work and get things done as we watch the train wreck of a twice-in-100-year failure to elect a speaker. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Light, who is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the, of the Government Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, President's Congress, and The Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Light. Always a pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And here we have a twice-in-100-year event underway in the House of Representatives. Back in 1923... It took nine rounds of voting to get a speaker, and today we have had the sixth round, uh, which, again, speaker, uh, the wannabe speaker, Kevin McCarthy of California, Bakersfield, is, uh, has lost a sixth round. So how much longer do you think, given <laughs> that it's close to the 100-year record, and frankly, it's a bit extraordinary, isn't it, that this is happening exactly 100 years later? Well, that's just a sad coincidence, I'd say. But I wouldn't predict uh, any closure on this. Uh, it is the most embarrassing moment for the House in some decades. Uh, we've seen all sorts of shenanigans uh, in the last 10, 15 years in the Trump administration and so forth, it's like deja vu all over again. So I would guess that uh, you would be wise to bet on a long engagement. How these folks continue to operate in that chamber, uh, hour after hour, casting votes required to be there in person to get this done, you know, I'm not sure it's a healthy uh, environment for anybody. Uh, so I will make no prediction about when it closes. 10 years, 15, <laughs> who knows? Well, I think you have to look at the people, though, that are in the Freedom Caucus. I mean, I don't, you have, have a long view of the Congress. Um, you started out, what, as an intern in the House? Way, way back uh, with uh, these uh, highly committed Dems and R's who work together to solve big problems like the Social Security crisis back in the early 1980s. They dealt with international affairs. Uh, that doesn't mean that they were perfect uh, by any means, but uh, they went to work. Uh, they saw these uh, issues come up and they uh, joined together to solve them on behalf of the country as a whole. I don't know what 
the motivation is here of the House Republicans. Is it to prevent? Is it to establish? Is it to be known? I'm just not discerning a clear uh, motivation. Um, Maybe to be famous, maybe to be the first in 100 years uh, to repeat this ridiculously and possibly obscene assault on uh, the democratic process. I can't figure it out. Well, but maybe it has a lot to do with the quality of these people that have emerged. I mean, I don't know whether we've always had the, you know, odd nutcase in the in the House, but you've got so many of them in the Freedom Caucus. Lauren Bobbitt today, she introduced Byron Donalds as a, as a candidate, as an alternative, and then went on. <laughs> I mean, she's absolutely ridiculous. And so is Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan. There's a whole bunch of them. Is that new that we've had this kind of crop of highly unqualified bomb throwers who seem to be more interested in sort of a nihilistic, you know, non-government than they are in anything else, apart from perhaps grabbing headlines? Well, we've had some bomb throwers, and and almost by definition, uh, a highly visible member of Congress is going to pick and choose and try to create opportunities for public uh, accommodation. So, it's not so much uh, the fact that this is happening. It's happening in such a profound and aggressive assault when the American public are saying, we need help in this country. We've got an inflationary surge. We sure hope it'll be over, but let's get to work on that. And let's deal with our infrastructure problems. And let's deal with student loan relief. All of these things on the agenda and what Americans are looking at is a bunch of children in a playground, partially aided and abetted by Democrats who are saying, hey, you know, if that's what they want to do to themselves, who are we to stop it? And I'm not sure the Dems could stop it. But my goodness, the message to Americans is don't look to us uh, for any help when we get into trouble. It's, it's really a stunning acknowledgement by the House Republicans that they do not see their job as helping the country advance. I, I, I can't come to a more um, hopeful conclusion. I, I can't make sense of it at all. And I sure hope somebody eventually says to them, what were you thinking? Because this is going to have a cratering effect on public confidence in Congress, which at the very end, my friend, could be why these members are doing this. Hey, what's better for a laissez-faire, don't do much a Congress than to have a complete shutdown like this and destroy public confidence in the institution? Maybe that's the underlying uh, intent. Uh, I just don't want to admit it, to be honest with you. Well, what they have admitted and what McCarthy has conceded to the Freedom Caucus, to the Marjorie Taylor Greens, etc., is pretty much what you're talking about. I mean, the first priority is to get rid of the Ethics Committee. I mean, that is extraordinary. That's like, we want corruption. You know, don't get in the way of corruption. Taking away metal detectors, unbelievable stuff. But their agenda, and this is what McCarthy signed on to too, is to cut Social Security, to cut Medicare, to cut taxes on the super wealthy, to uh, investigate Hunter Biden's laptop, to get rid of the uh, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, to defund the FBI, to investigate the retired Anthony Fauci, and so forth. I mean, that is their agenda. So, I mean, well, but, but, I mean, they get what what they do with this particular maneuver is they get modest, and, and, and by that I mean not very much credit for thinking about bigger issues. What should be done as the baby boomers head towards the fertile uh, fields of their retirement? What should be done uh, about recalls of cars and uh, groceries, so forth and so on? This gives them a little bit of a opportunity to say, yeah, we're going to get to it, but this thing that we got to do right now, uh, we need a few months to settle it. it. It's just absolutely contrary to strengthening the party. 
uh, for Republicans. And I rather suspect that uh, the Democratic or the Republican elite is saying, my goodness, we've got to stop this. Even Donald Trump is embarrassed. <laughs> That's not a very high bar to cross. OK, on the Democratic side, Dems cannot afford a long uh, continuation of this behavior because it does weaken public confidence in the institution as a whole. Dems have a very intense agenda. The Biden uh, team has come up with some important legislation that remedies some of these pressing issues. And Dems are not benefited by the embarrassment of the institution. You know, I haven't heard anything from the Supreme Court, but they've got to be saying, is there a back door into this house? Uh, can we uh, can we somehow hide from this embarrassment? And that's what it really is at the end of the day. There's no policy gain here. It's just an embarrassing uh, display of childish behavior. How's that? Well, it's an interesting contrast, isn't it, Paul Light, that today the President Biden is meeting with the former head of the Senate, now the minority leader, who is in his home state of Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, with uh, mm -hmm. Biden, you know, opening up a Build Back Better project, or, or at least the, not the Build Back Better, but the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has resulted in this new bridge being built between Kentucky and Ohio. Now, if only he can create a bridge between the, the factions and the Republican Party, good for him. He's doing what he should do, which is not engage in this uh, uh, demonstration by the House Republicans. Uh, but he cannot move forward on his other issues without getting them gummed up in the back and forth thing. Uh, he's doing the right thing. He needs to do some traveling around the country. Uh, yes, do some ribbon cuttings of one kind or another. Deal with the uh, water crisis in schools and small communities, the drinking water crisis. He's got to show that he's on the job and he's doing what he can, but he can't move forward on the bigger ticket items uh, until this settles down. And I don't have any clue when that might be. But do you think that the choice of this day for, for Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden well, to be seen together, McConnell is more or less saying, I'm in the Senate and we're getting a job done and we're getting things done and how different am I from what's going on in the House? I mean, it just seems so coincidental. Well, it's, it's, it's not uh, coincidental to a, a degree. It's, it's correct that the Senate would say we are not engaged in that kind of behavior and will not allow that kind of behavior. It could be that McDon uh, uh, McConnell is basically saying, don't you dare try this in my chamber because McConnell and the Democratic uh, leadership will not allow this behavior. And uh, it's good for them to be out there saying, this is the House. Remember, these are your members. You elected them. You want serious candidates. We'll give them to you. And McConnell's wise to try to separate his institution from the House. It's a mess. And it's going to take some time. I don't know. Maybe another 100 years uh, before the House recovers from this disaster. It couldn't be worse. Uh, for the uh, governing of this country. So did something happen then to the way candidates are chosen and voted in? In other words, it's always seemed to me that at least a majority of Americans have voted for Senate and House candidates who they assumed were more qualified than they were and that would therefore be able to do a, a better job. And it seemed to me that when... John McCain chose Sarah Palin, who was so manifestly unqualified, that sort of mm -hmm. opened up the door for people to vote for people that are just like them, you know, not qualified, but people that reflect their position in, in life. Do you buy that? I mean, it's, I'm just trying to understand why we've ended up with people like Lauren Bobbitt and Marjorie Taylor Greene and well, you know, I, this I kind of white can... trash takeover of the House. Well, you can take a, a look at, at Donald Trump and, and make the argument that he created permissions for people with rather spotty, oftentimes uh, absolutely minimal 
experience for the jobs that they were running for. The notion today that Donald Trump would say, hey, you know, maybe this is getting a little bit too much. When Donald Trump is the chosen uh, voice of moderation and uh, constitutional um, uh, norms, you know you're in trouble. So this could be sort of an infection that spreads from the uh, Trump years and starts to infect these lower level House members who are looking for a ticket up to the Senate, maybe not too far in the future, maybe to the presidency at some distance, distant points. They may be doing this in part or saying to themselves, hey, you know, I can wear this around my uh, neck afterwards. And, and I will remind people that I took the hard position against uh, those Senate uh blue bloods and so forth. Um, I, I really don't know what the House members must be saying to themselves, the Republicans, to justify this. What do they do? They, they're at the, uh, in the, the cafeteria and they're saying, well, you know, it's really not that bad. You know, I'll be able to run on this in 20 years. Something like that. I just can't understand the underlying motivation except to gum up the works, make sure that nothing passes, and have a referendum on Biden and the failures of the Democratic state uh, in a few more years. I, I just can't uh, figure it out. And I don't think it was deliberate at the beginning, but it is now a thing. It is going to be with us for a while. But there's a contradiction, though, isn't there, Paul? You were saying earlier that the American people uh, want help. They yeah. want the government to function. They want their water uh, clean and they want their roads fixed and they don't want this kind of childish playground activity going on now. But on the other hand, well, are, are you suggesting that there's a constituency out there that will vote for people like Lauren Bobbitt and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, who are equally as nihilistic? Well, I don't think that Matt Gates was somehow a flower child before this week. I mean, the, some of the people who are leading this have been well-schooled nut cases for a long time. So they're being activated. Then they're turning to people who are soft around the edges who might come with them. I, you know, I think the sociologists uh, in this uh, world could make sense of what's happening here in terms of a, of a brew, a toxic brew across a organizational body. So there were people who were already at the edge, ready to go, and they're pulling forward others who are saying, well, if that's what Matt says we should do, I guess I better do it because my constituents are similar or whatever, whatever. It has that kind of a sociological tint to it that we're going to be studying this at places like New York University for some time, trying to figure out what the heck happened that generated this uh, crush and this mosh pit of hatred and delay and um, demand for nothing. I don't see what uh, the purpose is here except to cause trouble. It feels a little 1950-ish, you know, like people just mulling around trying to find purpose. Maybe this is how these House members are trying to understand their future and what they do for a living, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Right. It, it, it really is. It, it's a sociologist, perhaps a psychiatric, uh, a psychiatrist's uh, job at this point to figure out what the heck spread this and then uh, accelerated it. And I'll leave it to you to find that person. It'll be a heck of an interview for sure. <laughs> well, I have an assignment and I thank you for joining us, Paul Light. Always my pleasure. Always. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Light, who's a Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress, and the Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government.
We can take a brief station break and back looking into the scandalous effort by Southwest Airlines executives to blame 5,000 flight cancellations over the holiday week on the weather after the airline's top executives took billions of taxpayer money from the payroll protection plan meant to keep their workers on the job and instead spent it on salary raises for themselves and stock buybacks. Welcome back. I'm Ian Bastos and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William McGee, who's a senior fellow for aviation and travel at the American Economic Liberties Project, who spent 22 years at Consumer Reports, first as the editor of Consumer Reports' Travel Letter, and since 2009 as the aviation advisor for advocacy, testifying before Congress numerous times on airline mergers, competition, safety and passenger rights, as well as serving as the lone consumer advocate on Transportation Secretary Raymond LaHood's Future of Aviation Advisory Committee an FAA-licensed aircraft dispatcher who spent seven years in airline flight operations management and was the first release officer in the United States Air Force Auxiliary. He is the author of two books, The Airline Industry Expose, Attention All Passengers, and Half the Child. Welcome to Background Briefing, William McGee. Thanks very much. I appreciate you having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And obviously, Southwest Airlines is suffering enormously with 5,000 flights delayed this week. But prior to that, we learned uh, that the PPP money, the COVID uh, relief money, which is taxpayer money, was used by the executives of Southwest Airlines to increase executive pay and to do stock buybacks. So I'm surprised there's not more of a consumer revolt against them. That's yours and mine money that's being used to compensate executives instead of improving the operations of this airline. Yes, you uh, you nailed it. There's no question. And I think the best way of putting it is that for the U.S. airline industry, the losses are socialized and the uh, profits are privatized. So, you know, we're at a point now, some of us, when we were testifying in Congress with all these mega mergers 10, 12 years ago, we were saying that we were approaching the too big to fail Threshold. Well, that's over now. We're there. And these, the, the industry most definitely is too big to fail. There's a level of concentration that we've never had since the very first ticket was sold for an airline in 1914. We now have greater concentration in the U.S. We have four major airlines controlling more than 80% of the, the market. We've never had that level of concentration. We've never had so few airlines, and we've never had such a long uh, dearth without new entrant airlines. So they have reached that too big to fail uh, threshold, but they've also, in my view, uh, reached a too big to care threshold. Um, they do what they want and they act with impunity. And so we can we can talk about a lot of things. We can talk about um, you know Southwest specifically, but um, to be quite honest and to be quite fair, uh, other U.S. airlines behave in the same way. When when COVID hit, we were told that there would be a bailout. It wasn't even a question, as there was after 9-11, about whether there would be. It was just a question of how much. In the end, they got $54 billion from the taxpayers, and that was the most, according to the New York Times, of any industry. And uh, so what do, what do we wind up with? We, we <laughs> That money was designed specifically to keep the payroll um, intact in and make sure that the airlines didn't lay anyone off. Well, what did they do? They found a loophole. So instead of outright laying off in many cases, they encouraged early retirements. And now we have a quote-unquote pilot shortage, <laughs> which is leading snowballing into uh, so many of these canceled flights. So this is, an, this is an industry that has gotten to the point where they don't fear consumer backlash. They don't fear uh, you know, media outrage because there's been plenty of that lately. But worst of all, they don't fear the U.S. Department of Transportation, which is the only regulatory agency that really oversees the day-to-day operations of the airlines. So there's a there's a lot to unpack here. Well, let's start with the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, obviously incredibly bright guy. Is he up for the job? If they don't fear him, that's not a good uh, comment on him. No, it's not unfortunately, and it's you know, quite frankly, it's a it's a it's a it's a major disappointment for many of us. Um, his predecessor was quite cold and indifferent to consumer issues, uh, Secretary Elaine Chao under President Trump. And when uh, Secretary Buttigieg was sworn in, um, I reached out to him and sent him a, a letter with um, 
uh, 10 or 15, you know, key airline issues that he should look at. About six months into his term, about July of 2021, uh, I and other consumer advocates that represent airline travelers, we met with him by Zoom. And I think it's fair to say that just about all of us came out with a very positive impression of him after we spoke to him 18 months ago. Uh, I spoke to him for about 15 minutes about the issue of airlines charging fees for families with kids as young as three and two and one years old to sit by themselves. Um, and so uh, we came out of it feeling that, you know, all the things that you said, I mean, you know, he's clearly an intelligent, articulate guy. He was taking notes. He was, he, he seemed to digest what we were saying. And we thought, well, there's a new sheriff in town and, you know, good things are going to happen. Well, we've been terribly disappointed. Um, he's been in office now for, for two years this month and he has yet to really use the power of his office to rein in this industry. This is an airline industry that he is continually asking and and suggesting and recommending. And, and I can't be more blunt or more frank. I've been around the airline industry since 1985. This is an industry that doesn't respond to uh, polite requests. The only thing that they really understand is when they are penalized and when they're forced to do something. And um, Secretary Buttigieg's approach has been has been wrong. He is clearly using the carrot and not the stick. It doesn't work with airlines. I, I don't know how to put it more more bluntly than that. And um, you would think that by now he he might have learned uh, because all summer long we just had the worst summer in 2022 uh, we ever had for customer service. And I'm not talking about safety or other issues, but from an airline customer service perspective, we never had so many delayed flights and cancellations and unpaid refunds. And time and again. Secretary Buttigieg has either not penalized um, the worst offenders, as he did with the issue of unpaid refunds. He 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 penalized Frontier, which deserved it, but they they, they represent about two percent of the market share in the United States. And he and he penalized five relatively small foreign airlines that have very small market share in the United States. Where were the penalties for United, which set an all-time high DOT record? with more than 10,000 consumer complaints about refunds in 2020 alone. Where were the, where were the, where were the, penal, the, the penalties for American, Delta, Southwest, the largest offenders? So uh, his approach, uh, quite frankly, has been ineffective. Um, and therefore, he has been ineffective in, the, in this job. And, and we, we are at the point now at American Economic Liberties Project where we're saying, well, this is the textbook definition of insanity. We keep banging our heads, asking the airlines to do better. I've been doing it for decades. It's not going to work. And we keep also banging our heads saying, let's get the DOT to do better. The problems at the DOT are systemic. Yes, I've been critical of Secretary Buttigieg, but also his predecessors, um, nearly all of them with a few exceptions. Um, and so because of that, uh, we're saying we need to find the third way. The, the airline industry in the United States right now in 2023 is a broken industry, and the DOT is a broken regulatory model. So what we're recommending is a third route, and that is to repeal something called federal preemption, which has existed uh, for the U.S. airline industry since 1978 when it was deregulated by President Carter. And federal preemption, you know, it's a legal term that most people have never heard of probably, but it's very simple. It just basically means that only Congress and the DOT have authority over the airlines. So what does that mean in the real world? It means that for us, for passengers, as American consumers, you have fewer rights in interacting with an airline in the United States than you do with virtually any other company. You, can, you cannot file uh, lawsuits through state courts in most cases. That's where most of the class action suits come as well. Uh, state attorneys general have no authority. State legislatures have passed bills with the airline industry. They've been struck down by federal courts. So we're saying, okay, if the DOT is the only sheriff, and they are, I mean, it's Secretary Buttigieg or nothing. Not like in other industries where if, if, a, if a weak regulator doesn't, doesn't do what needs to be done, you can find other ways. You can file class action suits. You can have state AG step in. Here, it's, it's DOT or nothing virtually. And so because of that, uh, again, at, at American Economic Liberties Project, we're saying let's lose federal preemption and let's let others step up and do what the DOT isn't doing. So we've drafted legislation, and I have to tell you, we're very excited. We've been speaking to members of Congress and state AGs, and we're, we're slowly building support. Um, and the thing that I think is, is worth noting 
is um, we've been happy to see support for this from both uh, Democrats and Republicans. And so we're hoping to have some news soon in the next uh, in early in 2023 where this gets introduced in Congress. I, I think it could be the single best thing to happen for airline consumers in the United States in 44 years. And uh, William McGee, just returning to Southwest Airlines, is there also the dimension, not just the Department of Transportation not stepping up, isn't there also a story here about Wall Street itself and the way you get CEOs that please Wall Street but not the consumer? The previous late uh, legendary CEO of Southwest, Herb Kelleher, was a, an airline guy. He, he knew the, bu- yeah. the business and he, he worked from the ground up and the airline really worked well under him. But then this numbers cruncher takes over in 2004, Gary Kelly, who pleases Wall Street, and he's behind all these stock buybacks, and he's stepping down now. Is this also a Wall Street story and a story of of numbers crunches being put in charge as opposed to people who actually know the business and know the people up and down the chain from the pilots down to the baggage handlers? The question arises also about the numbers crunches at Boeing that were behind the 737 MAX, which is a total catastrophe. Again, are we being taken over? Is corporate America being taken over by numbers crunches? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you nailed it, and I think you're right to also draw the analogy with, um, with Boeing, with the MAX. That is a company that has lost its bearings. And Boeing, it's hard to underestimate just how important Boeing has been to the United States for a century. Uh, dating back to World War One, uh, both on the um, military aircraft side and, and particularly on the commercial aviation side. Uh, and that was a blue chip company. And, you know, like they say, when you lose your reputation, it's very hard to get it back. Well, I think you know, you, you put your finger on the right thing here, Ian, in, in that it, it is a lot of it is about Wall Street. Um, I mentioned before that we had we've, we've had this dearth of new entrant airlines. It says right in the first sentence of the Deregulation Act in 1978, one of the primary purposes was to open up to prevent um, the government from from regulating the, uh, who could fly and to open it up to new entrants. That was that was a key factor in deregulation. Well, that has failed because we just had a, a period when I did the research on it from 2007 when Virgin America started up. Ironically, Virgin America also gone now because through mergers part of Alaska now, through, 2000 and, uh, through 2021, that was a 14-year period. Breeze and Avello, two new entrants started up uh, in 2021. We went 14 years without a new scheduled passenger airline in the United States. That's the longest ever. So they used to talk about that the, the U.S. government, the Civil Aeronautics Board in the regulated era prior to 1978, it was a high barrier to entry. Well, guess what? Now the barrier to entry is even higher. It's not the government that's the barrier. It's Wall Street. It's something called common ownership. When you look, it's not as if there's, you know, a group over here, group A of investors that, that has money in American and group B has money in Delta. No, they, they put their money across the board. So you have these common investors who have money in American, Delta, United, and Southwest. And Southwest, by the way, is not the low-cost carrier it used to be under Herb Kelleher. And so what happens? Do you think they're about to give money to a new entrant airline that truly is low-cost and it's going to lower fares? and therefore cut into their profits. So it's, it's all but impossible to get a new airline off the ground these days. Um, the, the issue of Wall Street, you're right. I mean, we, we have two conflicting purposes here. Aviation requires a lot of infrastructure, obviously a lot of focus on safety, a lot of long-term things. Look at Southwest. A big part of this holiday debacle was that Southwest chose not to invest in IT, in technology. It has... Uh, crew scheduling systems in place that I think are shocking people that it's 2022 and pilots and flight attendants had to get on the phone and call the office to say where they were available. I worked in the airlines in the 80s and 90s and that stuff was already getting automated. And so, you know, you're you're a CEO of an airline in the United States these days and you have to uh, answer to Wall Street before you answer to the customers or the employees or anyone else. And it's all about quarterly profits. So if you're faced with the choice of, you know, a dividend or, you know, watching your stock price go up or executive compensation or 
something, you know, boring and mundane, like investing in necessary IT, well, the wrong decisions get made, right? And so, uh, you know, there's there's an inherent conflict here. We are talking about something that not only is, you know, critical from a safety standpoint, the airline industry, but it's also critical to America itself. That's why the bailouts are automatic, because it's critical to the economy that we have a, a vibrant airline system. It's critical to our security. It's critical to everything. And yet, it is a, a public uh, industry in that way, and it's a public industry every time the bailouts come around and the taxpayers bail out this industry, but the rest of the time it's a privatized industry, and they do what they want, and they make the investments they want, and it's absolutely absurd that Southwest had, didn't, hadn't invested in IT for years. This meltdown was preventable, and I know that there are people out there saying, well, it's not Southwest's fault that there was snow. Trust me. I'm an FAA-licensed dispatcher. I worked in, in, in airline operations control management. I dispatched flights. I canceled flights. I'm saying to you that it's not about the snowstorm. It's about how you respond to it. Now, every other airline in the United States dealt with bad weather during Christmas weekend. Why is it that all of the others were back up and running within 24 and 48 hours and Southwest was having problems eight days later, still having problems? So uh, you're right. It's a, a big part of it. Is Wall Street? It's about the you know the 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 the, the all important you know quest for profits, even when it means that you're not doing right by investing in the company. Well, in regard to the meltdown of Southwest over the, over the Christmas and New Year's holidays, where they tried to blame everything on the weather, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg did say in his appearance on Tuesday on NBC's Nightly News, quote. This has clearly crossed the line from what's an uncontrollable weather situation to something that is the airline's direct responsibility. So right. you you want him to go beyond rhetoric, right, in the last Oh, no here. question. Yes, absolutely, no question. I mean, you really need to do much more here. As I said, this is a broken industry. Now, what we all need to be doing is watching what Secretary Buttigieg does in the coming days in response to how how Southwest is treating those hundreds of thousands, if not over a million of passengers who, who were um, displaced. Are they getting refunds for other flights, for hotels, for, for restaurants, et cetera? All of the things that happened when, they, when their flights were canceled. I think that the pressure is on Southwest to, to step up and the pressure is equally on Secretary Buttigieg to ensure that Southwest steps up. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today. William McGee. Absolutely. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with William McGee, who's a senior fellow for aviation and travel at the American Economic Liberties Project, who spent 22 years at Consumer Reports, first as the editor of Consumer Reports Travel Letter, and since 2009 as the aviation advisor for advocacy, testifying before Congress numerous times on airline mergers, competition, safety, and passenger rights as well as serving as the lone consumer advocate on Transportation Secretary Raymond LaHood's Future of Aviation Advisory Committee, an FAA-licensed aircraft dispatcher who spent seven years in airline flight operations management and was a flight release officer in the United States Air Force Auxiliary. He's the author of two books, The Airline Industry Expose, Attention All Passengers and Half the Child. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.